podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome all you QT faithful to your final hymnal devotional, where each month during season two, myself and my special guests have been sitting down and taking an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. Ian Schultz, creator and writer for PsychotronicCinema.com. And together we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the Once Upon a Time Hollywood soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Schultz, and may Tarantino be with you always. So I've saved... The biggest for last. This one is a whopper as far as uh, soundtracks go. This is his biggest track listing of his career. And with only one left to go, it may end up being the biggest one of his career. How have you been, sir, since we last spoke in July on our Tarantino speculation? Uh, I've been okay. I have uh, somewhat retired as a film critic at the young age of 32. Uh, I may go back to it at some point, but um, I'm currently a volunteer at the Hyde Park Picture House, uh, where I scan tickets once a week. Oh. I'm doing some filmmaking-related stuff as well. So. That's very cool. You're So you're going from the uh, talking about film to the making film world. It's what I was supposed to do from the get-go, but I ended up being a critic for a while, so... If you have a chance, what would be your first film that you would like to make? What would the essence of it be? First film I would like to make, um, I, I would love, and ever since I care, I would love to make a um, accurate version of Hercules. That would be something I would really like to do. That would be uh, interesting. So, what's your favorite version that's out there? None. Wow, <laughs> there's, there's no one on the list at all. They're all garbage. Yes, because they never followed the Trap Labors. Was all integral to the story of Hercules. This is true. Yeah, that does. Kind of the whole basis of his uh, of his lore, and it's such great adventures. I mean, it'd probably be a miniseries, to be honest. But well, you could write a miniseries and then decide after you've announced the miniseries to change it into a film. Well, you have like Ethan's labor would be would be a um, episode. What was your favorite labor? Oh, when he goes down to Hades, and it's great that and gets Cerebus. Yeah, there's there's uh, quite a few good ones out there. So who would you cast if you had the opportunity? As Hercules, and I'm assuming it's not The Rock. Uh, no, it wouldn't be The Rock. Um, I have no idea. It's a very difficult 
role to cast. <laughs> well, especially since the action hero types of modern day outside of The Rock aren't the muscle-bound, steroid-shooting heroes of the 80s. Yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily even want that for Hercules. Um, what are you talking about? He-Man toys have been sold with these giant muscles for decades. Yeah, you could be big, but you don't, don't necessarily want, like, the bra, which, <laughs> to be honest. Well, we're here today for the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. What are your feelings, and what do you like about the actual, the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, um, it's probably my second favorite of his after Jackie Brown. Um I just love like the the detail he put into all the period stuff is just amazing, um, and I think one of the things I think is amazing about the movie, which is kind of a magic trick that he pulls off, is when you now think of Sharon Tate, you think of her in the film and not says statistic in the Manson murders. It's a very good point. We got into that on the uh, under the influence, where especially if you're of an, a certain age. Uh, I would say younger than Gen X, you definitely now know Sharon Tate from this film, as opposed to how those of us from Gen X and older went into the film, knowing that, oh God, this is a Manson movie. At the end of the film, we're going to see in Tarant- or what we thought would be Tarantino's interpretation of the events of that night and how she would be murdered in a more fictionalized version. And instead, he flips that on its head. And so, yeah, now it's interesting. Margot Robbie is the person I see as Sharon Tate now, even though... I did go back and watch for that episode of The Wrecking Crew with Sharon Tate in it. And yeah, it, it is interesting. She was, you know, for my generation, because we grew up after she had been passed, she had passed. We knew her as the, you know, the the horror story of Manson. Manson was the the boogeyman. And what he did to them, you know, we'd heard about. And so it was always this very dark moment. And then he flips it and changes it into more of a light moment where she's now kind of this angelic figure as opposed to this. You know, uh, just a chapter in history. Yeah, it's a very impressive magic trick he pulls off. I mean, obviously, I knew the whole story beforehand, but um, because uh, you know, like every teenager, I went through my serial killer phase. <laughs> it's it's definitely a thing we do. And but yeah, it's that, that and you know the performances are great, and I think it's you know it's also kind of the last hurrah of a certain type of um, filmmaking in a sense, and a certain type of movie star. Uh, you know, the fact that it's you know Leo and Brad is integral to it you know really wouldn't work with anyone else although i know tom cruise was kind of possibility for cliff at one point that'd been interesting tom cruise is very short i don't know how he would have how he would have measured up to being the same as uh, you know especially when he's fighting bruce lee you know like yeah at least even in the movie obviously brad pitt's a bigger stature of a guy when he's fighting oh, what's the name there mr o and he throws him so he looks like he's in a bigger imposing figure than bruce lee when you've got you know Tom Cruise being almost the same height as Bruce Lee, you don't get the same kind of feeling like, oh, Tom Cruise's Cliff Booth's going to beat Bruce Lee's ass. You'd have to find a shorter Bruce Lee actor, I guess. <laughs> almost a midget. <laughs> so Tom Cruise looks like he's a giant over him. All right, well, we're going to get right into it as we have got a lot of music to cover for our final hymnal devotional. And now it's time to reach under your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This soundtrack was released on July 27th, 2019 by Columbia and Sony Records. It features a whopping 31 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 1 hour, 14 minutes, and 19 seconds. Tarantino and his music supervisor, Mary Ramos, listened to over 14 hours of original 1969 KHJAM soundcheck to help create the soundtrack. 
It includes original Boss Radio jingles by Johnny Mann and commercials, as well as the voices of Boss Radio DJs Don Steele and Charlie Tuna. They selected the songs for the soundtrack by going through Tarantino's vinyl collection. Tarantino and Ramos were approached by some named acts to record covers, and even by Lana Del Rey to record original material. But QT insisted that he only wanted to use music before 1970. And we start with track number one, which is Treat Her Right by Roy Head and the Traits. This song was written by Roy Head and Gene Kurtz and was the single off the 1965 level, Treat Her Right, the best of Roy Head. The song reached number two on both the Billboard Pop and R&B charts. The song has been covered by over 20 recording artists, including Jimmy Page, Bruce Springsteen, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bon Jovi, and Otis Redding, to name a few. Now this song plays as Cliff drives Rick to his meeting with Marvin Schwartz and simultaneously as Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski arrive at LAX, which is what we would call the opening credits as we do have the bit of that cold open where we are on the set a couple years earlier when we were doing a behind the scenes of Bounty Law with both Cliff and Rick. And then as soon as that little moment's over, we kick into this and this is where we push in on the giant life-size photo from a movie of Rick Dalton's that's parked in his drive in his parking lot right near his house. And then we kind of kick into the film from here. How do you feel about this song and its use as the opening of our film? Uh, it was a good little sort of blue-eyed soul, slightly rockabilly track, which kind of works really well, uh, although it's kind of a little before the, the events of the film, 65. It's definitely a really upbeat, and you know immediately what era we're in. You know, There's no denying that we're in the 60s at this point. Obviously, we know we're in the 60s if you know about the movie and where, what time frame it is, but it, it just... This whole entire, as we're going to go through the whole entire album, has that no doubt we're in the 1960s, late 60s at that uh, time frame, especially where it's got that California feeling to it. It's got the hippie vibe. It's got that acid, uh, summer of free love kind of vibe to it. And I like that it works well where we're introducing our main characters, our three main characters, and they don't need their own little theme songs. It just feels like now we know that the movie's not about technically them, but really about an era. And uh, I like the way that this song kind of kicks it in. And I love how they also have combined this music to, this is the most, I guess if you can call it meta of music, where it's playing in an air that it will be playing, and it's coming out of the speakers of the cars that they will be riding in, as opposed to just being like this needle drop on the soundtrack that we're hearing and not necessarily the uh, actors themselves are hearing. I like that. It is really integral, especially the ones that make the soundtrack. It's not just the soundtrack of the film, but it's actually the soundtrack of the people, fictional lives, who are who are actually living in the, uh, the air that this is coming from. And to connect it with some other songs on the soundtrack... Many, many years later, uh, Lost Straight Jackets did a cover of it with Mark Lindsay, who was the lead singer of Paul Revere and the Raiders. It was a pretty big hit at the time. Uh, I think it was it was number two on the U.S. pop and R&B charts in 65. Uh, Yesterday by the Beatles beat it to number one. And uh, yeah, that's that's about it, really, about that one. Yeah, it's a fantastic little opening number. Not as good as some of his other ones, but like I said, it just... Gives us an instant nod to know where we are in time and what movie we're about to watch. But it leads us to song number two from a man who seems to have been around for six decades now. It's Rambling Gambling Man from Bob Seger's System. This song was written by Bob Seger and recorded in 1968 as the Bob Seger System for his album of the same name. Glenn Fry of the Eagles plays acoustic guitar and sings backup vocals on the track. The song peaked at number 17 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and became Bob's first ever top 20 hit. This is one of Bob Seger's earlier bands before he became Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet. And this is one of the songs that plays as Cliff is driving home after dropping off Rick from their meeting at Muso and Frank's with Marvin Schwartz. It's the driving scene of the movie. It's the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're driving at night. Yeah. It's the one. Yeah, we we realize how fast 
Cliff likes to fucking drive. Like yeah. He is never driving the speed limit at any point in this film. And it was the first song outside of one we'll get to, which I heard in the trailer from a, a gentleman that my parents listened to when I was, was younger and were big fans of. But it's the first song in the film that when it was playing, I knew exactly who that artist was. I just thought it was Bob Seger and the Silver Bullets. I did not realize he had an earlier rendition of his band. Oh, he, he had other, I mean, he had other band before that. I mean, he, he was, I mean, I'm not, a fan of the later Bob Seger, but I mean, he was a proper Detroit garage rocker before that. Um, you know, doing gigs with like, like the Stooges and MC5 and like the Amboy Dukes, which was Ted Nugent's band at the time. So the really Alice Cooper band as well. He's a stalwart of the Detroit music scene for sure. And, you know, he's also, well, like you said, you know, you were probably not a big fan of his 80s stuff, which really, really took, kind of re- re- revitalized his career, became a little bit more well-known in the 80s. He was able to kind of rise above some of the, the many great bands of the 70s by, you know, staying relevant into the 80s. I think recently I heard one of his band members, it may have been the bass player, passed, and I think Bob Seger decided to call it quits as far as uh, touring because of that. He's... You know, I mean, he's up there in age as it is, but I think he said, you know what? That's that's a wrap, folks. The silver bullet has uh, is retiring from hitting the trail on the on the music scene. It's a perfectly timed song because it, you know, I mean, he's fucking hauling ass down the freeway at night, which in LA is a little bit easier. Obviously, in the '60s, not the same traffic we have nowadays in modern times in LA. But usually, the freeways at a certain time when, especially that late in the evening, that he's headed home would afford him the ability to uh, to speed. But I also love the fact that they actually shut down these highways to get these driving sequences uh, done. And I always find that so fucking cool that they were able to. I mean, those are major stretches. They had the money. <laughs> true, true. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, if there's there's a few people who get to shut down things, and I think like Scorsese, Tarantino, there's a couple of guys out there who have that cachet that they can get some things shut down with, you know, with a minimal amount of effort. But the Ari Asters of the world, they're not shutting down the major freeways in major cities just yet. That's, they still have a little bit more uh, more cachet to build before they're going to be able to do that. Now, do you actually like this song? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's him in his, like, sort of garagey mode. It's a real kind of borderline garage rocker which um a lot of the songs are kind of garage rock actually yeah especially some of the rock songs that we do have on this album that it just has early hints of grunge where it was some notes where grunge would pull from it's proto punk it's like palmer being raiders were like one of the first garage bands yeah no i know but i'm saying like you could hear some of that grunge homemade sound from some of these early bands as opposed to like when we get into the 70s when you get into the led zeppelins and that starts you know really towards the metal you know, the, the dawn of the metal scene. There's more production value. There's just something about some of those bands where, you know, obviously some of the chords and stuff people are playing in grunge, they, they pick them up from the Zeps, but that's the sound. It has that homemade, independent sound feel to it from the late 60s as opposed to some of that more... It's just because the recording techniques were pretty simple. Yeah, exactly. But I think, I think a lot of the grunge artists, early, early stuff was... Some of their demo tapes was, you know, really kind of vitalized from these. Also, probably Green Raiders were Washington band. The Pacific Northwest band. They yeah. were kind of in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Good old Idaho. They're, they're more famous than just for potatoes. They're Paul Revere. Formed in Idaho. But we'll get Paul Revere and Raiders very quickly. <laughs> that will lead us to what some would consider also a pioneer of the metal scene, which would be Hush from Deep Purple. This song was written by American composer and musician Joe South and recording artist Billy Joe Royal in 1967. Deep Purple's cover of the song was released in the summer of 1968 on their debut album, Shades of Purple. This song was the band's first ever hit single, peaking at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Now this song plays as Mr. Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate drive to a party 
at the Playboy Mansion. And we also learn that Mr. Polanski also enjoys a bit of driving fast as he is also hauling ass down the hills of L.A. and Hollywood on his way to the really cool Playboy Mansion shop. And he's dressed up like Austin Powers from... Our Austin Power movies. He dressed like Roman Polanski in 1960. No, I know, I know. I'm just saying, but like, if you're not a person who understands 60s, the first thing someone I knew said was like, why is he dressed like Austin Powers? I said, well, that's kind of like the 60s male vibe. That was why Austin Powers was still dressed like that because he gets frozen after the, you know, before the 60s are over. So when he wakes up, he still thinks of the 60s, but I just think it's really a cool, like, that that the, those two outfits are literally the same outfit. And you're just kind of like, oh, wow, that, that's wild. I mean, I know Roman Polanski has, um, he's got definitely checkered past he's definitely one of those people like woody allen i just read the uh, making of chinatown book which is fantastic by the way called the big goodbye which i highly recommend anyone was goes into a lot about sharon tate as well mm. no and he's one of the greatest directors ever and and that depiction of him as a kind of andre, andre, adrenaline junkie so to speak, is pretty accurate because he was he was he loved to race cars. He was a big skier. Skiing is very important in his life. So yeah, it's, it's pretty accurate to who Polanski was and is still. Now, do you think it was a good idea for Tarantino not to focus on Polanski, much like he doesn't focus on Charles Manson in this film, outside of them just being characters who are out in the ether, who we know are part of that world, but we don't. We don't focus on them. Like, like the bigger names, even though Sharon Tate is the person who gets brutally murdered and she really is a household name now because of that, wasn't really the household name if you were to talk about them in order of who people knew more. Do you think it was just smart for him to just kind of like sidestep them and focus more on our fake story and then just have her there? He was never a focus of the story. That's the thing. He was never, even in the true story, he was away in London preparing day of the dolphin i believe so he was he wasn't there obviously and, and then you know he got he got the phone call the next day i believe and then obviously flew back as soon as humanly possible uh and then he i mean he he did his own sort of um sleuthing for a while to find out who, who killed her which definitely played into the making of chinatown you know he you know what tracked him to make a, a detective story um, obviously by the time that film was even even attached to it, they had you know solved the the, the mystery, but it, it took about a year, I believe, before they they did catch the Manson family. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think I read that the first warrant for arrest didn't come to like December of that year, and this had happened in August, so it took them almost four or five months past the murders to actually start to try to apprehend some of the the members. And uh, this is pretty well known, but he he even thought it could have been Bruce Lee because they found a pair of glasses that looked suspiciously like Bruce Lee's glasses at the um, crime scene. Yeah, I read that as well, that Bruce Lee uh, was uh, a suspect, although briefly, but he still was a suspect in the in the uh, murder, which is, which is bizarre. Life could have been a lot different if he had been somehow wrongly accused may have lived longer well you never know i know it's it's interesting how time of that era has uh, changed cinema forever in good and or bad ways that we'll never truly know unless we're able to jump into different timelines and see how they went a different way but for that song i i know deep purple uh, they have another one coming up later on and i'd heard that but i'm actually know more of their 70s stuff than i did their 60s uh, music. Are you a fan of Deep Purple? Uh, not hugely, but um, I mean that that's them in the sort of psych period. They were there's like a lot of those bands. They started out as a psych psychedelic band, and then as the 60s became the 70s, they kind of became more of a hard rock yeah. band. But it's a good song. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very hard to find some of these songs. There's a one or two on here that I'm like, eh. 
but it's hard to find some of these songs that don't just slide in and fit to what we're the story we're telling. It just really they just are really great background pieces, even though we do hear them sometimes very, very fast. Like, you know, we get cuts between songs as people are driving. It goes into another song just like it would on the radio. Unlike some of his movies, except for maybe when we talk about the end, we don't get a moment where the music really kind of like takes hold like they do in some of the his earlier films. You know, like when Vincent walks in and we've got Son of a Preacher Man when he first goes to meet Mia, like you instantly know that scene from that music and I feel like some of these songs are really a lot of just background tunes that push us along and as if we're driving with them. How do you feel about that? I would agree to some extent. I would definitely say Ramblin' Gamblin' Man definitely um, is one that you think of, of the scene. Mm-hmm. The, the Playboy Manson, a mansion song, um, mm-hmm. Son of a... What's, what's the Son of a... What is the name of the song? Yes, um, it is coming up to Son of a Loving Man. Son of a Loving Man. That's... Yep. Definitely, you can think of that. And then, um, obviously, uh, Good Thing, which we'll get to later. Of course, there's a new trailer as well. You know, you're right. There's, I think there's probably a few that do actually stick out as I'm now thinking about it. But And, of course, Out of Time, which is not on the soundtrack. But that does lead us to a song that I have never heard before in my life, have never heard since. And that's song four, Hector by The Village Callers. The Village Callers were born out of a band called Marcy and the Imperials in the mid-60s and were very popular in East L.A. This song is the A-side to their very first single, released in 1968. The infectious light groove of the song has been sampled by such hip-hop artists as De La Soul, The Beastie Boys, Cypress Hill, and Ice Cube. This is also one of the songs that Cliff listened to on his way home from Rick's as he's flying down the highway. And on the album has a great little intro from Mr. Don Steele, the real Don Steele, which is always uh, fun. My father was in radio in the 70s through the 90s. And so back in the era of the disc jockey, when DJ meant disc jockey and not some guy who just likes to push buttons at a club and wait for a beat to drop and uh, get paid a lot of money to really not do a whole lot outside of that. But back when DJs were something that, you know, they're not as prevalent anymore. Howard Stern feels like one of the last... And by disc jockey, he didn't really play music. He had more like a show. So it feels like more nowadays people have these radio shows as opposed to being just radio personalities where the guy would, you know, like like when you hear Don Steele, there's the big Don Steele, you know, he's real hyper, you know, gets the songs going, but just a real radio personality to introduce every song, someone to keep the mood and the vibe of the radio station going and to be kind of that person that people know of. We kind of lost that, at least here in America. I don't know what it's like. You're now over in your in you know England, but here in America, we you know it's just it's usually just a bunch of Tom, Dick, and Larrys grab assing each other in the, on morning shows. Uh, you know, doing fucking phone call pranks and what all this other stupid stuff. And it's not really they're mostly just bullshit radio morning shows as opposed to a, a DJ that's you know you you couldn't wait to hear them come on and you know and you would actually be excited for them and they did have something cool to say about the band or whatever but I feel like that 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 golden era is is over that that's never coming back and I think we're, we've moved on I would say I, mean, I don't listen to radio just because I have an amazing record collection and uh, not to toot my horn too much but I have so many good records that I don't ever listen to radio but I mean I guess um, you still have like BBC Sits Music which has like you know different d- DJs they've got like a Iggy Pop has a show and Jarvis Cocker has a show and Laura Laverne and Steve Lamack um, who are both quite well known uh, radio DJs in the UK but it's much more specialized than it used to be for sure I had to re-listen to it today getting ready for this first I thought it was one of the extras I thought it was like a, an actual um, maybe a commercial and then I listened to it and I was like oh yeah I think I remember this but like you said I do think that it's <laughs> we forget about it because Rambling Gambling Man comes on and this just kind of feels like background music that we forget. Yeah, it's, it's when he's like driving into the 
in the drive-in. Yeah, and then obviously we do the crane shot. We hear that, dun, 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 you know, the whole little. Which is done with uh, toys, by the way. This is awesome. I didn't realize that, but I was like, till after the fact, I was like, that's amazing that he used to like with a model yeah. car. Yeah, so I think that, that that whole scene, I was seeing him drive in behind a drive-in theater to go to his trailer. And, you know, we're kind of going up over and we see the the opening, you know, go out to the lobby and the feature presentation credits rolling. And then, we you know, we're in the back of where he is. You completely forget that there's a song on the radio because you're just like kind of eh, kind of enamored with the visuals that are being uh, put before you. I thought it was cool, except for I wouldn't want to live in that very tiny trailer that he had. I don't think there was a bedroom. I think it was just a kitchen and he slept in the chair <laughs> or on the couch. Uh, I think there was a bedroom, a very small one in the back. A very small one? But it was cool that he was like, you know, that somehow he was able to put a trailer on the outskirts of the property of the movie theater and that or the, the drive. I thought that was really that was, that was a really cool nod to give him, well, you know, where he would live. And it's obviously we're supposed to also see the difference between Rick and Cliff, where they both live. In, in the book, you know, he's a, he's a big film fan, mm-hmm. which Rick really is it. No, he's he's more of a TV cowboy. Yes, and you know he like he likes action movies. He likes westerns. Well, Cliff he can uh, go see a Kurosawa film, and yes. I, 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 Rick would not go see a Kurosawa film. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and the one that gives that away is when he's doing uh, his little line reads Spanish, 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 Spanish. <laughs> he's not sitting there reading fucking subtitles. I just love Spanish, 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 <laughs> some some Spanish. Oh God. And I would say. Probably say something about uh, the real Don Steele. Absolutely. Because um, one of the, and something we should probably mention as well, but slightly related to this is, is, I don't know if you know, his initial plan for the soundtrack was to use songs from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is was it's a great idea. I think he should have put one in personally because it would have been a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. And Don Steele, of course, was this very famous DJ in LA, but he was also in many, many films. He was in Rock and Roll High School. He is in Death Race 2000. He's in Gremlins, Eaton Raoul, Grand Theft Auto. He was, so, you know, he has his own sort of film history himself. And all of those films are films that Mr. Tarantino clearly likes very mm-hmm. much. And he's got a very, um, very memorable voice. Very memorable yeah. voice. Like, I know I'd heard it before. I know my father probably talked about him, but it'd been a very long time since I'd either heard either a recording for, of his. But the minute in the movie, it was just like instantly, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I've heard this name and I've heard this voice before. And it's amazing that, I mean, like we just said, it's amazing that we've gone away from that. Like, it's, it's interesting that the personalities, like we have these talk show host personalities, but yet we don't have them for the radio anymore. So just, a, it's an interesting change in the, in, you know, how music has, and how we present music nowadays, how it's just changed the medium and the, uh, the people who are presenting it to us. It's just a real interesting way that it's completely changed. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm maybe, maybe I'm just a sentimental, but I miss the, those days of, of having that voice you knew and trusted and you just knew that whatever this person was putting on was going to be something good. Like you actually trusted their music knowledge. It's almost like our vinyl store owner now where you would try to trust what they're telling you where that was the, that was the person who was really kind of like launching the music back in the day before we had all this corporate, you know, push to, you can only play these records on this company because we're owned by the so-and-so. So I guess there's a, a longing for an era that's long gone. Which is what the film is kind of about. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And Stone Star, I always remember him from Rock and Roll High School. Because he's, he's, I think he says, welcome to Rock and Roll High School when they're about to blow up this, the school. Oh, it's just a criminal high school or something. I can't remember what the line is. <laughs> it's a very memorable appearance in that film. Well, it will lead us to our fifth song. 
And that is the song you already alluded to. That is Son of a Loving Man by the Buchanan Brothers. In 1969, Terry Cashman, Gene Pistol, and Tommy West formed Buchanan Brothers. They released three chart-topping singles, with this song peaking at number 61 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart, and at number 50 in Canada. Now, this song plays during the now-famous, for those of us who are fans of this movie, party scene at the Playboy Mansion, where we learn that certain Hollywood stars, no matter how attractive they may have been, could not land Sharon Tate. She apparently has a penance for short... <laughs> Short brown haired white men as opposed to blonde <laughs> who, who look like who look like little boys. Who look like little boys, yes. He <laughs> yes has a thing for that. Steve McQueen is not her type, and, and much to Steve McQueen's chagrin. Now, imagine if Steve McQueen was there. I think life changes. Like we don't have the same thing. No one gets murdered yeah. at that house. It's a whole different movie. Yes, I think Steve I think Steve McQueen could have probably kicked uh Tess's ass. One, I don't think Steve McQueen's living in that house. He's got something a little bit. He's a little. He's a. He's a bigger player at this moment in time than yeah, Mr. I mean, he, Polinsky. He, he is uh, at this moment in time. He's still Polinsky. Polinsky will get. Will move up because he just came off Rosemary Berry. Polinsky was a pretty hip cat by that point. Yeah, but I'm saying like as far as cachet, who's got the more star power? It's still man, it's McQueen. Obviously, uh, McQueen's going to slowly yeah, fall yeah, off that horse. He had just made Rosemary's Baby, so he was like the next massive director. It's interesting that. Damien Lewis gets to play Steve McQueen. I love Damien Lewis. I think he's a fantastic actor. It's interesting of the people that we bring in and out of the film, because obviously, if you've read the book, obviously one of Tarantino's favorite actors is also Steve McQueen. He loves a lot of his movies. Talks about at least two or three of them in the book. I mean, we have the great Rick Dalton pretending to be the Steve McQueen part later on in the film. And one of the better CGI things I've seen in, in a while and was very surprised that Tarantino went that route because that's usually not his his flair, but to... Uh, it's, the only, well, it's the only way he could have done it. Oh, no, I agree. But I just think it was, I just, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, he's very against digital film as it is. But for him to, like, you know, go the bounds of it not being real is uh, was just really cool to see. Well, it's, it's pretty minimal. I mean, you just take... I don't know if it's if it's Stephen Queen and they just put his head on top. I'm not exactly sure how they did it. If it's if it's Leo all dressed up or, or not, because um, I haven't seen a making of of it to, to find that out. But uh, no, it's it's very very simply done. I, I would imagine. Well, there's another CGI thing which they did. I don't know if you remember this. Is um, in the first trailer when the, when she's at um, the Vista Theater, there was a security cam you could see in the trailer, and then he digitally removed it for the theatrical release. No, no, I didn't notice that. I missed that. People pointed it out, and he was like, oh, shit. I mean, he, he was able to change the majority of the front landscape of all of downtown L.A. for a while, which I'm sure you've probably heard. But him doing so, a lot of the people kept the new, the old-looking fronts that they used to have. A lot of the people, when he went through, changed the fronts of their building. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, he had quite a few of the actual, uh, res, you know, the owners of those buildings actually liked it, and they said, well, we'll leave it, because it, it gave a more authentic look to to their area and kind of uh, made them stand out. And also probably helped with tourism as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it works for, in both ways. It gives you a feel of old Hollywood, but also now you also are part of an actual movie set that actually was filmed there, as opposed to, you know, you can look back at like where Jack Rabbit Slims was, like an old bowling alley, and I don't even know if it's there anymore. Some of these places that used to be there in these films are gone, you know, from the from the 90s. A lot of them get, you know, knocked down and something else gets built in a spot, so it's cool to know that there are these, there are still some landmarks out there that we can go visit and see when we make our way to L.A. But this song is uh, very reminiscent of the time. It's a great song. It's a great sequence. 
And he does a great job of it not being like, I mean, if you were to say, that, oh, we're going to shoot a f- uh, scene at the Playboy Mansion, everyone's first thought is going to go, it's going to be a little smutty. It's going to be a little less clothing, some sex going on here and there everywhere. But he did a great job of making it just the party atmosphere that it was and didn't have to go into, you know, some of the some of the stories people have heard over the time about the grotto and everything else that happens there. But it was nice to see that we just kind of kept it at this very lively, upbeat party as opposed to letting it become anything seedy. Well, also, he's been there many times over the years. So, you know, he, you know, it's, it's, and, you know, if you, Talk to you've ever been, they say it's, it's kind of a bit cheesy. And also, probably the stories are totally exaggerated anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, most stories are. And I thought it was pretty cool that he was able to actually shoot at the actual Playboy Mansion. That was, that's a, probably a real good get for him. Well, I'm sure it was. A, I mean, it's kind of, it's pretty run down at, at the moment. So it was probably pretty easy to get. And obviously, he, he knew Hefner. Yeah. So you have no was around, but you know, it wouldn't have been that difficult to negotiate. Did you like the scene? I think it adds to who who she is. Yeah, and you know, it, it totally shows who Polanski is. And there's the great bit with Jay Sebrig, and you kind of see how much he's still in love with her. And yeah. it's it's a great sequence. It's one of the best film, parts of the film, actually. And it's interesting because it's all basically just there for us to know about the backstory of her marrying him and what happened between her and Sebring. It's completely designed for us to watch her, but also to give us information without having to do any flashbacks or anything else. It's just a great way to have Damien Lewis tell us a little backstory on the love life without us having to do any kind of voiceover or anything like that. So it's a, it's a well done because normally, you know, when, when you do that kind of stuff, you see it coming, but it was, it was good subterfuge. It was good subterfuge to be able to give us a little insight into uh, what's going on in the story without uh, us realizing we're being told the story. That will lead us to song number six, Paxton Quigley's Had the Course by Chad and Jeremy, the biggest tongue twister of all the songs on here. Chad and Jeremy were a British musical duo who began working in 1962. In 1968, they collaborated on the soundtrack for Three in the Attic. This song is the second track on that album and was used as the music for the film's trailer. It also appears on the group's 1969 album, The Art. Now, this song plays briefly a few times, the first on Rick's TV as a part of a commercial for the 1968 movie Three in the Attic and plays a few more times throughout the film as a commercial. This is one of the ones that, when I listened back to it, I, I don't remember this at all. I know it's there. I'm sure it's there. I I, I remember the ad part of it more than the song. The song part of it, yeah. Which was an interesting, because there's a few songs that were left off. Again, comes down to rights, so I've had this discussion in the last couple of episodes. So most likely this is a rights issue. This was something probably easier for him to get, as opposed to some of the other songs maybe he wanted to put on the album. But this is one of those songs, like, you're not missing anything if you skip it. If you listen to it, you'll learn a new song, but you will not remember this, in my opinion, being in the film at all. And so when I first saw it on the list and I'm writing down my stuff, I thought, is this one of those ones that we're going to talk about at the end where it's not actually a song? And sure enough, it is. And it's, of course, it's one of the ones you can download. There's a few of them on there that some of the better songs you're not allowed to download on iTunes because they are not available in your region because they want you to go to that artist's greatest hits and get it off of there instead. So again, I won't spend a lot of time on this song because it's part of a commercial. And it's just background. Well, I, and the other thing I'll, I'll say is um, it, it's it's more just to set up the, the era because Free in the Attic was kind of a hip movie with Christopher Jones, who was in Wild in the Streets. I'm sorry, I'm surprised he, he could have used some Wild in the Streets songs, actually. That would have been cool. Who was kind of this actor who kind of 
crew have faded after he was in Ryan's daughter. He, him and David Lean did not get on, but he was like this very hit cat for like a year and a half in Hollywood. He had as brief a moment as this song does in the film. But it will lead us to a song that we definitely know, and that's song number seven, Good Thing from Paul Revere and the Raiders. Paul Revere and the Raiders were an American rock band formed in Boise, Idaho in 1958 and saw mainstream success in the mid-60s to early 70s. This song is the first track on their sixth studio album entitled The Spirit of 67, released in 1966. The song peaked at number four on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and is one of three songs from the band to appear on the soundtrack. Now plays on Sharon's record player and can be heard out her window as Cliff is climbing up on the roof and taking off his shirt to the appreciation of the women in the audience so he can fix the antenna on Rick's roof. And it also leads to his flashback to when he fought Bruce Lee. This, like you said, this is one of those songs that also is in the trailer. This is a song that people will remember. And he also catch uh, Manson at that point as well. Yes, when he comes back from it. Yeah, when we get back out of the... Uh, our little flashback, He Will Catch Manson, but it actually is this next song, which is also another Paul. So Paul Revere yeah. and the Raiders, they're on this album uh, three times. Get three three tracks from them, so they are replacing Ennio Morricone as the person who gets the most nods on an album this time around. This is a great song. Watching her dance and sing and pack to it is just, it really does give us great insight into the beauty and spirit of who Sharon Tate was. Yeah. And also, the weirdness of how close her relationship with Jay Seabrook was that Roman again they don't say where Roman is because he you know woke up earlier he's outside drinking he can't stand the dog he's bringing him the ball I love that little moment well it's pretty well known they had a fairly open marriage Polanski certainly had his taste for let's say some younger ladies we could say oh we could say that maybe why he's not in this country anymore including when he was with Sharon and I'm sure she had her own flings and I'm sure her and Sebring got together when she was married with Roman. And the only person she didn't get together with, unfortunately, much to his, like I said, chagrin is, unfortunately, our boy from the Playboy Mansion scene. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I love I love uh, this little song. It's very much a mishmash of the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys. Yes, yes, that's that's a that's a very fair point. I love how she uh, busts uh, Sebring's balls because he's listening to the Raiders and she won't tell Jim Morrison in the doors that uh, she, he's not listening to them right now or she's enjoying them. I thought it's a nice little uh, moment. Clearly, he wasn't able to get a Doors song because that must be way too much money. He could have got a Doors song, no problem. He just didn't want to. Well, he does like to keep his tastes a little less uh, on the nose or mainstream as possible. Well, but and, and to be fair, probably the Raiders were actually a pretty cool band. I mean, they were... Um, for those who don't know, they were pretty much the first, along with the Fabulous Railers, not the Bob Molly Railers. They were, along with the Fabulous Railers out of Seattle, kind of the first garage rock band. And they had a lot of, of really great songs, uh, Kicks and Just Like Me. And uh, they did a very early version of Louie Louie, as did the Sonics. And later on, they had a really massive hit with uh, Indian Reservation, which I think is actually a bit of a shit song, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure sure this of mid to late 60s Hollywood Raiders. And they, I mean, they were also, they, they were um, on TV all the time, which is one of the reasons why he used them. They, 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 are, they were kind of linked with the monkeys, although they were a bit more, I and mean, the monkeys were very cool in their own way and quite subversive. But Hollywood um, Raiders were like a proper old school garage rock band. And that sound, they kind of originated in them. Um, in, in Washington and Oregon and Idaho. And they would play these frat parties. I love the song in the moment. And 
it works really, really well. As I said, I love that it's a part of the actual scene. It's not just a needle drop, although the needle is dropped on it to start it. The fact that it is in the house, outside the window, it's in the atmosphere, it's a part of the scene, not just a song playing over the soundtrack. I really like that a lot about what's going on in this uh, for this movie. Uh, actually, I'll read the introduction. Uh, the back of the sleeve of this is great, actually. Hall, Review, and the Raiders are a rock and roll group. They are very good, and they are very successful. This is not always the same thing. They came from the Northwest America. They now live and work in Southern California. That is all we intend to say on Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> well, it will lead us to our eighth song, which is, again, another Paul Revere and the Raiders song, and it is Hungry. This song is the seventh track off the band's 1966 album, The Spirit of 67, and peaked at number six on the U.S. Billboard Top 100 chart. It is the second song for the band to appear on the soundtrack, while the song Good Thing from The Spirit of 67 album is used in the film's trailer. This song continues to play on Sharon's record player, obviously, post the flashback sequence as... Good old Charlie, Charlie Manson in his ice cream truck, drives up through the neighborhood and is observed by Cliff as he is up on the roof realizing that, yeah, he probably fucked up his opportunity to work as do any stunts on the Lancer show. Again, it's a little breadcrumb drop by Tarantino to keep those of us who know the story on the edge of our seat knowing that something is coming down the road and to keep us thinking that it's going to be the horrific events of reality. And that's why when we the events actually don't go the way we thought they were going to go, it's such a twist, such a surprise, such a, a welcomed change that we didn't realize it was coming. We should have. We should have known. He's already done it twice, but we did not pay attention. And he... He once again got us, because I remember sitting there, and I've talked about this with other people about this film. I remember sitting there kind of on the edge of my seat the first time seeing it, knowing what was looming at the end. And, you know, falling in love with the characters, but knowing in the back of my head, like, all right, this is this this happy train is going to come to a fucking abrupt halt, and it's going to be awful. And so just kept sitting there wondering, how's Tarantino going to fucking end this film? And then didn't see what was coming, coming. How do you feel about this song from the Raiders? It's uh, probably my least favorite of the three, but it's still a good song. It's less memorable, in my opinion, because by the time I hear it, we've just had that great, in my opinion, great moment with Cliff and him fighting Bruce Lee. We also then see Chuck, Charlie Manson, his squirrely little face pops up on screen to remind us that, hey, this movie's about my murders. <laughs> and uh, so you kind of... Don't really listen to the song. You're kind of more paying attention to what's actually happening on screen because you've just come off a great sequence. You finally see the real, what we think is the real villain of the picture. And he's also going up to the house, so it's very ominous. And that's intentionally set up, which really did happen because he was looking for, as you said, the he rented out the house and he lived, uh, The one of the music producers for the Beach Boys lived in a house out back. So that's why Chuck was there. And this is how all this stuff happens. The interesting thing is, for those of you who don't know the Lord, he was looking to sell his music. Charles Manson had some talks with one of the Beach Boys, and they were going to get together. Well, they'd kind of been blowing him off, and he showed back up because he was kind of like getting a little bit antsy, and they weren't there anymore. And that is really the whole reason he sent them to kill him. He wanted to take out his anger, try to start a race war, by killing the people who lived at Celio Drive. And I don't think he really knew who lived at Celio Drive. He just knew that the guy who was supposed to live didn't anymore. So it was almost like he was sending a little bit of a message to them. And the rest is history. But that day that we see in the film, even though we kind of glaze over it, is really a turning point to what happens six months later in the actual reality of the story. I think it's just an interesting, it's like it's an interesting footnote that a lot of times uh, people unfamiliar with the reality of the true story of the Manson murders, it kind of slips by. That that's that moment in time which starts kind of the wheels of him picking that as the first house 
to go to, which other people forget that they murder some other people a, a day or two later. But not in this movie. They had one shot. Those fucking hippies aren't right. To slightly correct me, uh, he performed tambourine on That's Not Me and got on those on Pet Sounds and also on the Good Vibrations single. Yes. But he never a producer of the Beach Boys. I believe the Beach Boys may have even covered one of his songs that he wrote, if I'm not mistaken. He he co-wrote Kokomo. That that changes that meaning of that song instantly. <laughs> Sounds like those are the islands that are not extradition that he's heading to after the murders. He's going to Kokomo, Antigua. Oh, 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 I thought you meant Terry Melcher. Sorry. sorry. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking about. I'm, no, I'm talking about Charles Manson. Terry Melcher co-wrote Kokomo. Uh, no, the song that the that the Beach Boys did for Manson was never. Learn Not to Love, which quite famously, I don't think they gave Manson credit. Yeah, that's, I think it's one of the reasons that he kind of went off the deep end as well. Imagine if they had given him credit and he had been allowed to even pursue a music career. Do you think the events still go the same way? Do you think life is different completely? I think it would, it would be very interesting. I, I, I could see Manson being someone who was rediscovered as like this freak psych folky guy, like 20 years after the fact, um, like if he did release an album at the time uh, and people were like, Oh, it's this stuff is amazing, man. Uh, mechanical <laughs> man, stuff like that, which is kind of a good, cool song actually. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was just so many people at that time who were trying to break yeah. in. So who knows? It's, uh, we will never know. It's the fun ifs and buts of, of, of history. But it leads us to song number nine, Choo Choo Train, from The Box Tops. The Box Tops are an American rock band formed in Memphis, Tennessee in 1967 and were considered a blue-eyed soul group of the era. This song appears on their third studio album, Nonstop, which was released in 1968. The song peaked at number 26 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. This song plays as Cliff drops Rick off on the set of Lancer and during his You're Fucking Rick Dalton, Don't You Forget It moment. It's right after one of the commercials we'll talk about, which is my favorite commercial. The uh, tanning, Hawaiian tan commercial where it says it doesn't burn that much while you tan with that. I always thought that was a spectacular way to lead into this song. But um, never heard of the box tops before or since. But I do enjoy the song. Oh, okay. So so you will actually probably know a couple of the songs. Do you know, there's a song called The Letter, which if you hear it, you, it would be like, I know that song. Oh, okay. So then I, had, I need to dig deeper into the box tops, into their catalog, because like I said, if I choo-choo train... That's, that's that's the extent that I can recall, but I will definitely check into the box up and see what other songs I know. So I had a big hit called Neon Rainbow, which you probably heard before. I think it was even an ad at one point. But the box tops are kind of most famous for um, it was is Alex Chilton who would go on to form Big Star, who was this hugely influential uh, power pop band in the early seventies. The Replacements wrote a song called Alex Chilton in the eighties. And it was his band when he was a teenager and he had like these top ten hits when he was a teenager. And then he starts his band Big Star and kind of still wrote kind of these great pop songs, but kind of wanted nothing to do with box tops because he was kind of disgusted that he was this teen idol. And there's there's a, still a version of the box tops just about Alex Chilton at the moment. As they're really? all like these band, and there's like one original member. Yes, and they still do the great uh, over here in America, the state fair circuits or the uh, whatever generational cruises they'll put out there, and they'll get on these things. <laughs> uh, and they all come out like like wax dolls of themselves. 
Yes, I've seen quite a few of these things lately, but uh, you know what? Hey, more power to them. They're still, still trying to stay relevant, and they're probably still making money doing it, so who am I to, who am I to judge? I, I know Mark Lindsay's from Power of Raiders is still doing stuff, and his voice is still in pretty good shape, which is rare for someone of his, his age. Yeah, and that's that's the key for some of these bands. You know, you got to keep your voice. You got to keep your voice up. But yeah, I mean, this this scene is, you know, it's more memorable for him being told, nope, you're not going to be able to work on this set, and him telling, you know, Rick, you're fucking Rick Dalton, don't you forget it. So, and it's a great moment in the in the in the trailer. It's you know one of those moments when you know you're kind of, oh, that's kind of cool. So, great character moment between those two great actors. The song kind of just you know blends in with the scene. Great song either way. But it allows us to go to track 10. Another one of those songs just kind of gets in from something that's really not about the film. But Jenny Take a Ride from Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Mitch Ryder, born William Cheryl LeVice Jr., is an American rock singer who has recorded more than 25 albums over five decades. His original band was named Billy Lee and the Rivieras. He chose his stage name of Mitch Ryder after seeing it in a Manhattan phone book and then renamed his band Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. This song appeared on their 1966 album, Take a Ride. The song peaked on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart at number 10. Now, this song plays during the trailer for the Joe Namath movie, CC and Company, that plays prior to The Wrecking Crew. It's when Sharon has decided to stop in and watch her film after she's looking to pick up the book for Roman Polanski that she's bought. And she sees her film, The Wrecking Crew, playing across the way. She goes in. She gets a picture taken. They let her into the film. And as she's walking in, this is that bizarre Joe Namath biker movie trailer that we get. And, uh, yeah, that's where this song comes from. So... Again, I heard it today, and it's not as memorable, and I forget the gentleman's name, but as the white-haired soul guy who's singing in the trailer, who looks like he's in the movie as well. Can't think of his name right now, but that's more memorable from that trailer than this song was. And all I remember is that Joe Namath, oh yeah, they've been grabbing professional athletes and throwing them into movies that they don't need to for years. I think it's a Jim Brown effect. I think they thought, well, Jim Brown's in a movie. He's good. Joe Joe Namath, I mean, he's doing stocking commercials. He's got to be good for a movie. So there you go. Broadway Joe made it to LA and it's now Hollywood Joe. Well, um, the story, one of the stories around that, uh, and actually, uh, a few things about that song. Uh, it, it's 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 actually a medley. Uh, it's it's basically the half the song is an original song, and the other half is a CC writer, which is a old blues standard, which Elvis did and various other people did. Actually, the song that Martin Scorsese. Uh, said stimulated his interest in music. Wow, that's something I didn't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. That's the song that stimulated his interest. I for sure thought it was a band or a Rolling Stone song, as those seem to be two of his favorite acts of all time. Yeah, I remember hearing something that and this is a, a pre a earlier version of the song, not the Mitch Ryan Detroit Reels Reels version. I remember hearing something uh, that was unlike anything I've ever heard before. The music was demanding to listen to me. The song was C.C. Ryder, which I already knew from the Chuck Willis cover version. The name of the so- singer was Lead Belly. It's an old Lead, Lead Belly song. I don't know if you guys it's even pre-Lead Belly. Um, it's a very, very old song. And he found an old Folkways record by Lead Belly, and, he, and I listened to it obsessively. And Lead Belly's music opened something up for me. I could play guitar, really played it. I never would have became a filmmaker. There you go. And it made it into a Tarantino film. Mitch, Mitch Ryder, much like Bob Seger, was a Detroit garage rocker at the time and uh, just was one of his, his first early hits. And, he, and I think he's still around, I believe. Yeah, he's, he's still he's still around and released a new album about a decade ago. I think he's definitely on some oldie circuit. <laughs> so, so you might... He actually just released a new album this year, actually. Really? 78. Good for him. Good for him. He's still kicking. It's a good little garage rocker. So, uh, fun fact of Mitch Ryder. Winona Ryder, 
Her last name is not her last name because her last name is Holleritz. Comes from Mitch Ryder because she likes Mitch Ryder. There you go. Look at that. You're learning all kinds of things on the old Tarantino podcast here. All you Winona Ryder fans now have a little uh, bit of information you can use at a party to make yourself sound pretty fucking smart. Because you know what? I'm going to do that. But then you have to under- you have to explain to people who the fuck Mitch Ryder is first, though. So there's a Mitch Ryder, Martin Scorsese, Winona Ryder tie-in that you're going to have to, you know, explain for us. But that's extra information. And there you go. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a whole big thing. <laughs> but it brings us to song 11, the midway point of this episode, and it's Kentucky Woman by Deep Purple, their second track, however not written by Deep Purple, and we'll get into that. This song was written and performed by Neil Diamond and released as a single in 1967, where it peaked at number 22 on the U.S. Pop Singles chart. Deep Purple covered it in 1968 and released it on their album, The Book of Taliesin. Their version of the song peaked at number 38 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and is the second song for the band to appear on the soundtrack. Now, this song plays as Cliff drives back to Rick's house to fix his antenna. So, again, much like he does in his movies, except for this film, this is out of sequence. Some of his records are out of sequence, which sometimes can be a little off-putting for some, but not not really. I I don't really mind it, but this song is the first song that's playing as he's driving out and then we get into another song that we'll that we already talked about so that's kind of the the the, the flip of how he does this I, I enjoy Kentucky Woman but again it's one of those I'm so caught up in the scenery and the visuals that are going by when he does the driving sequences and how he's reset up uh, LA especially now that after I've seen it the first time and every time I watch it I'm really looking at all the facades that he's recreated and just just the way that, except for, you know, like you said, they had to get rid of that security camera. But it's hard to tell that he's not back in the 60s. He's done such a great job with the the design for this production that you kind of lose yourself in the whole moment. So some of these songs, and, you know, because there's a lot of them, but some of the songs, if you don't really know them well or they don't stick out in a real moment, you can just kind of, like, uh, lose them in the ether of the film. How about for you? What did you think of this song from Deep Purple? I think it's the lesser song, certainly. Um and actually, um, the other one is actually a cover as well, actually. Um, not a song written by Deep Purple, which was, I think, I think, I think the first couple albums of them, a lot of them were covers, I think. It was pretty common for a lot of the bands at that point, mostly covers. Uh, especially, it's like the first albums, like the first Rolling Stones album is just a lot of covers. And there's a couple of Beatles albums, a lot of cover, covers, just a couple of Beach Boys songs, albums are covers as well. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a perfectly okay song. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the the thing that's kind of notable about it is it's, it's uh, written by Neil Diamond, who of course we'll get to later on. Yes, who I was alluding to earlier, that is the artist my parents were a big fan of when I was growing up. So I know a lot of his stuff, whether I wanted to or not. Again, one of these songs that just you know, there's there's a couple on the track that just blend into the the scenery with which they're at. They don't necessarily they're not short thumbs, but they don't stick out as one of those ones you go. Oh, that's right. I remember that song. I love that song. It's just one of those songs that, you know, if you skip it, you skip it. If you don't, you don't. However, it does lead us to track number 12, and it is a song that I'm going to say right off the bat that I skip, because I did not like it in the movie. I do not like it still. It's just not my taste. And since I don't answer the questions at the end, this would be my least favorite track on this album. It is The Circle Game from Buffy St. Marie. This song was written by Canadian singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell in 1966. Her version of the song wasn't released until 1970 on her Ladies of the Canyon album. It was originally recorded by Buffy St. Marie in in 1967. Buffy's version was a part of her 1967 album Fire and Fleet and Candlelight, but unfortunately, this song did not chart for her. Now, this song plays as Sharon drives to LA and then picks up a Hitchhiker on her way to obviously going to the bookstore and then the movie uh, to watch herself on the big screen in The Wrecking Crew. 
I'm not a big hippie female flower power song person. I do not like this song. It annoys the shit out of me. I know it fits for the film. I know it fits for who our character is. I know all of that. So under that, guys, I'm okay with it being in the film, but it, I fucking hate this song. I'm sorry. I absolutely... There's all, if any of the songs are really on his albums, I think of all of them, this may be the song I hate the fucking most. I can't stand it being on. I'm just not a big hippie flower power person. And if it's, you know, other people love it, to each your own. But for me, freaking do not like this song at all. Your feelings on this, Mr. Shields. Maybe you, maybe you love it, and I apologize, but I... I can hate this thing. All right, song. I, I, I don't know if you I don't know if you know who wrote it. Right, you don't hear it right now, but I probably already told everybody who just wrote it just a second ago before I came in and dispersed and shit all over it. But yes, but go ahead, please. This is why I bring the guests on it so that you can impart it's, more stuff for us. It's a it's a Joni Mitchell song that was covered by Buffy St. Marie, and of course Buffy St. Marie at the moment is having a bit of controversy uh, over her Native American sort of her. Claims to be Native American is uh-huh. far over if she actually Native American or not. Twenty three and me will answer that question for you right like that. While you're playing the circle game, we can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's this is it's all right song. It 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 suits the it suits the um, time period. Uh, and also it was it was also used in uh, the Strawberry Statement, which is a kind of weird hippie student film that's kind. of I'm sure partly he was thinking he was, he probably likes that film and I'm sure he watched it while he was while he was writing the script because it's you know it's one of the more notable uh, sort of counterculture films of like '69 70, which um, ha- is actually one that has a lot of quite famous music in it. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of student protest movie. What makes that interesting is that they're listening to this while she picks up the hippie hitchhiker in oh, a yeah. Porsche. That's what's kind of like the image and the song don't marry with each other well, which I think may be part of the point, but it's kind of interesting that she's listening to this very free love hippie song while riding in a very capitalistic, flashy sports car that is like totally against what the hippie culture is about, but here she is driving in a Porsche, picks this young girl up and they're, you know, driving along and they're getting along fine, obviously we can see from in the film, but to hearing this song and, you know, with, while also being in a Porsche is kind of a interesting take and then she drops the girl off to keep walking where she's heading and she's dropping the car off to valet so it's just it's an interesting look at two different things happening in the in in that moment where we're kind of like oh we don't really like the upper class this whole greedy money thing but yet this woman is driving porsche and now dropping it off and getting it valeted which it's not something the hippie girl's doing but yet hippie girl's kind of happy for the ride so she kind of sidesteps the all these facts so just interesting and also for people who don't you know, of a much younger generation, hitchhiking used to be something you did. Something people did without even thinking about it. Well, and also, people would pick up hitchhikers. You know, someone like Sharon Tate would totally have picked up a hitchhiker. Yeah. And after she was murdered, you know, so Hollywood sort of shut down to outsiders, you know. Yeah. People having these gate communities and locking the doors for ones you know. Just a, a good, interesting scene to have put together. And it's, you know, one of those things that just, there's a little something being said. You know, little, little subtext that, which is what's great about movies. If, if you just enjoy a movie for what it is, perfectly fine. But some of us really enjoy those extra viewings where we start to see the subtext. We start to peel back the layers. We start to see what's being presented to us. That on a first time viewing, a lot of times it goes right past us because we're so enamored in the story being told that we're missing some of the stuff that's also being said as we uh, as we go along. So just some interesting uh, things, you know. Plus, I mean, probably she got it because it was a you know it was a female driver. Like it's a lot a lot safer to get into a car if you're a female with another female than 
anytime it is with a man. And that's even for us men. Like, I would rather hitchhike and be picked up by a female than another male. I just don't, I don't even trust us. So, oh, yeah, yes. yeah. But it does lead us to song 13. And in my opinion, the most recognizable and probably popular song on the soundtrack. Something that people, I mean, it was made popular in a movie of that time frame. Uh, these were very big uh, folk singers from that time frame. And it's Mrs. Robinson from Simon and Garfunkel. This song was written and recorded by the American music duo of Simon and Garfunkel for their fourth studio album entitled Bookends, which was released in 1968. The song was featured in and on the soundtrack for the 1967 film The Graduate. The song peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and became the band's second number one hit. Miss Robinson was awarded two Grammys at the 11th Annual Grammy Awards in 1969, becoming the first rock song to win Record of the Year. Now this song plays as Cliff is driving Rick back to the house Host Musso and Frank's meeting with again Mr. Marvin Schwartz. As they wait at the light, some of the Manson family cross the street in front of their car, and it's when Pussycat and Cliff catch one another's eye. It's also a great moment as if you watch the film further, we realize that Rick has a certain feeling, has a boomer feeling towards the hippies. He fucking hates the hippies. We learned that early. He even says it in that moment, fucking hippies. However, if you watch how Cliff dry or Cliff dresses, he's close. He's definitely counterculture and he's close to hippie. He's got the moccasin footwear. He's wearing jean jackets. He's a lot more hip than his buddy is. But he just he's a little more subdued. Right? He just you know keeps quiet, doesn't do a big thing, but uh Cliff is impressed by the passing hippies where Rick fucking would run them over if he did not have his license taken for his ninth or 10th or 12th drunk driving incident that we get that great little moment of voiceover early in the film. Now, obviously, you know the song. I mean, this this song was covered by the Lemonheads during the grunge era. I think it got a, a, a resurgence because of that. Unfortunately for them, it's their fucking most popular song, and they were a better band than that. But that is, unfortunately, just the mark of history. And the song comes from a film with Dustin Hoffman, The Graduate, kind of a, a basically a movie about uh, the original cougar. Miss Robinson's the original cougar. She liked a uh, little young Dustin Hoffman, also has a penance for small boys, and uh, let Dustin Hoffman uh, hang out with her for a little bit. So what is your feeling on this song and it being in the film? Did you have any problem with it? Or do you feel like it's that one that's like, feels like the cornerstone that anchors the rest of it? Well, I don't like... I don't personally not like Simon Garfunkel, but it, it, it works. I think it's one of the more obvious ones in the film. Uh, and obviously it has such a connection to the graduate, but also that is a song that would have been playing on the radio for the next two years. You know? It was- yeah. Well, it also leads in, I forgot to say, with Don Steele introducing it. So it is from this tape that they, that they found. Yeah. 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 Well, we should probably mention that. So basically yeah. um, a friend of Tarantino's, I don't think he mm-hmm. ever named who it was, but someone Gave him a bunch of tapes of just about fourteen music. hours worth, which is insane. Yeah, so, so someone taped fourteen hours of just uh, radio from sixty nine around sixty nine. I think some of it may have been sixty eight yep. as well. So a lot of these songs are actually sixty eight if you if you look it up. So, but also also songs would, just, would still be playing a year later anyway. Well, yeah, because this film opens in February, so it would be you know it would fit that that yeah it would fit that it's, I mean we're still listening to songs sixty eight because we just we're just two months into the new year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of that was actually K-Rock, if I'm not mistaken. It was just not. Uh, yeah, but, K, well, yeah, what's not K-Rock? It was KHJ, yeah, out of uh, L.A. Yeah, I, I think they ch- changed it. I think a lot I think some of those tapes were K-Rock, and then, but it's, it's KHJ in, in, in the uh, film. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's a very obvious choice. They only play about, what, 20 seconds of it or something? It's, it's a very short clip in the film. I think it's one of those songs that a lot of people have heard. 
I think yeah. it's the most memorable or recognizable song and maybe one of the more memorable ones because you've heard it before. But like you said, yeah. it, it does fit because it is in that time frame. And like you said, it would be playing in the radios at that time, which obviously the person who recorded it did record it during that time frame. And so it makes complete sense that Don Steele's introducing it and we, we get it in the fucking theater. Also, uh, like the, one of the jokes that Simon Garfunkel is like every charity shop has Simon Garfunkel's greatest hits. Like you can't not find <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think my my parents have had, and I, I may have it now, the the vinyl of their greatest hits and, and the graduate soundtrack. You also find all the time as well. Yeah, no, you're you're hundred percent right. Yeah, that's and poor Mr. Garfunkel, Paul Simon went on to have a pretty good career throughout the '70s and '80s, and maybe briefly in the '90s, and then decided to punch his wife Edie Brickell, and that kind of fell apart for him. And uh, poor Mr. Garfunkel has kind of just been really quiet, like didn't have the rise of success. That uh, Paul did post their uh, splitting of the great duo of Simon Oligarfunkel. And also, Paul Simon somehow pulled Carrie Fisher. Yes. Well, you know, maybe she too had a penance for a short, <laughs> for dark haired guys who were short and looked like schoolboys, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Carrie Fisher was done with uh, Harrison Ford by that time. It was like, all right, fuck it. What else? What can <laughs> I lose? But it brings us to song 14 Bring a Little Lovin' from Los Bravos. This song was written by Harry Nada and George Young, both members of the Australian rock group The Easy Beats for the Spanish band Los Bravos. The Los Bravos version appears on their 1968 album of the same name and reached number 51 on the U.S. Billboard Top 100 chart. The song was also featured in the first teaser trailer for this film. Now this song plays as Cliff drives back to L.A. to pick up Rick after his very eventful outing at the Spawn Movie Ranch. Good stuff. It's one of those songs where you you hear it, but your still mind is wrapped up on the fact that We've just had our first interaction. And this is this is where the real fake part of the film starts. Our fictionalized version where Cliff, you know, interacting and driving, that's that's one thing, you know, but him now actually going to spawn, running into see, seeing the compound that they were staying at, being in that world, which what which obviously didn't really happen. It's our first mingling. And again, it's a reminder by Tarantino because it's at the end of the middle of the, the story, the second third of the film, it's that, all right, I know you like these characters, but don't forget, we're murdering Sharon and her friends at the end of the film. And that's kind of like in our mind. It's, he's reminding us of, we meet Tex, who's one of them. We meet a couple, and we get to meet Squeaky Frome, who goes to prison later. And then we get, you know, a great fill-in from uh, Mr. Bruce Dern as he obviously replaced the late, great Burt Reynolds, who was originally supposed to be playing that role. I will say this. I think Bruce Dern gave the better of the performances, even though we don't see Burt Reynolds. His little, his ability to go off the cuff, uh, you can see he almost breaks Brad Pitt a couple of times. <laughs> um, when he goes, not everyone needs a stunt man. Like there's a couple of times you can see Brad Pitt holding it together from Bruce Dern just kind of needling him within that scene. So, but I love that scene. But again, this is one of those songs. Good song, but it just kind of gets lost in my memory because I'm so focused on what we just saw. And that that's like the last precursor of what's to come. We now have he saw Manson, he sees the people. He doesn't he doesn't combine the two because he has no idea that's Manson. He's just seeing some squirrely little fucker in an ice cream or bread truck that's showing up. And he kind of ran into these motherfuckers, and we're gonna that's gonna come into play later. Again, how do you feel about this song? Did, did you remember it? Or was it one of those ones that maybe you passed by, or maybe you actually have a better memory of it than me? Because you're a little bit younger and I'm older than shit now. No, I think it's a really good song. Uh it's it's actually um it was written by the Easty the Easy Beats, 
which were an Australian pop group. Uh, they, they were huge in Australia. But the group were actually a Spanish group. Los Bravos were actually from Spain. And they were like the first Spanish band to ever have a, a hit in the U.S. And the Easy Beats, for people who don't know, and, and also the Easy Beats, uh, one of the members is actually the older grower of Angus Young. And Malcolm Young from ACDC, a fun fact for you. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a very sort of influenced by uh, a lot of the sort of freak, what would be now known as freak beat, uh, sort of British stuff like The Who and Pretty Things, and has a, a real kind of good beat to it. It's, it's, a, it's a really good song. And I, I think it's one that the music supervisor brought to Tarantino. So obviously Tarantino normally has his list of songs, but obviously he still has a music supervisor. Uh, and I think that one and also um, Son of a Loving Man were the two that the music supervisors suggested to Tarantino, if I'm not mistaken. At least one of those two. I can't remember exactly which one, but I know, I know you said there was one of those songs was brought to him by the music supervisor. You know, the man does eventually, you know, sometimes let people put another finger in the pie and help him out. You know, he's not uh, perfect. Both good songs and both that really work within the scenes that they're constructed in. It takes us to song 15, Hey Little Girl by D. Clark. This song was written by Otis Blackwell and Bobby Stevenson and performed by D. Clark. The song appears on Clark's 1959 album, D. Clark. The song was number two on the U.S. R&B chart and number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. This is the second song that plays as Cliff is driving Pussycat back to Spawn Ranch. And it is... There's a theme in rock and roll that dates way back to even Jerry Lee Lewis and many rock stars, as a matter of fact, the Beatles, where it is about an older gentleman coveting a younger girl. And this song plays... It's a May-December romance song. Yes, but it is definitely perfectly placed in this moment because this is the moment that Pussycat has offered to blow our hero cliff, and he asks for some ID and says... The law isn't trying to get me, but it ain't going to be pussy to put me in prison. So I think it says Poontang. Oh, sorry, Poontang. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. He does say Poontang. Once again, Tarantino has a way of adding in, making the songs also tell part of the story of what's going on in the scene. He's done that quite a few times in his movies. You just have to kind of pay attention to it as you go. But Hey Little Girl by D. Clark is just another one of those songs where, you know, I'm not saying old my age in the 40s, but, you know, 20s. Mid-20s, maybe early 30s, just covering a young teenage girl and the whole song. You know, it, it seems innocent until you listen to the lyrics and you go, Jesus Christ, this is, yeah. This is, she's just 17, and you know what I mean, <laughs> the way she looks. Seal Beatles, Kiss has a song called 17, or 16, Winger. Alex Chilton, who was in the box tops, has a, has a great one called Hey Little Child. Yeah, pedophilia has been going on for a lot longer than some of us have wanted to open our eyes to, and some of our favorite musicians, whether they realize that they were singing someone else's song or not, they've been singing some pedophilia greatest hits. There's a time life box set we all need. The Best hits of pedophilia songs. All the songs where older gentlemen are pining for the love of a young teenager who is not of age yet. Maybe Michael Bay will be one of the people who put that together. Uh, anyone who listens to my other podcasts will understand that reference. If not, just watch Transformers 4 and you'll see the Romeo and Juliet card that's pulled out and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So, anywho, uh, this song is... A decent song, but the song prior to it, which we're going to get to in about 
the next song, actually. I love that song more. It's the song that they start the trailer with. It's the song that I knew, besides Mrs. Uh, Robinson. So I'm still kind of in that vibe of I loved that song being on. So this at this point, I'm also now watching the flirting going back and forth and trying to figure out what is Cliff going to do. Like, you don't really know. Like, Cliff was kind of like, uh, definitely had the eyes for it. There's definitely sexual tension between the two of them until he decides to venture into the Spawn Ranch house, and that ends everything. He cock-blocked himself at that moment. That ends any hope he ever had with Pussycat, but <laughs> up until... That moment, we never really knew how far Rick was willing to, t or Rick, how far Cliff was willing to take it. Did you, when you first saw the film, ever think that there might be something with Cliff and Pussycat that maybe it would be explored a little bit in this uh, scene? Or no, I think he's intrigued by her, but I don't think he would act on anything. At this point in his life, let's say. Plus, once he says, do you have your license or on you? Or he wants to know how old she is. He's not going to prison for that, as he said. He may have murdered some people. Read the book. Um, but he draws a line at that. Although the song would suggest otherwise. We move on from our pedophile top five to song 16. My favorite song on the, on the album, since I don't do the questions at the end, but I'll let you know mine. It's Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show from Neil Diamond. This song was written and recorded by Neil Diamond and appears on the opening track for his eponymous album released in 1969. It reached number 22 on the U.S. Pop Singles Chart and has been covered by Peggy Lee, Dolly Parton, Sonny Cher, and the Wright Brothers Band. A blast from my young past as my parents were big Neil Diamond fans and Beach Boy fans, along with other stuff, but I remember listening, well, kind of forced to listen to when you're younger, but listening to the records at home on like the weekends, cleaning the house, so really well-versed in some Neil Diamond, but this song plays as Cliff drives through L.A. after fixing Rick's antenna, and this is when he crosses paths with Pussycat again, and offers her a ride, and this is when she flips off the LAPD and calls them pigs, and what a, what a moment, but we had a feeling that they were eventually going to cross paths, you know, we had our little Mrs. Robinson moment, which again, another song playing at the right moment. Just in the reverse, Mrs. Robinson obviously is a cougar, and this is a young man talking about her, and now we have kind of the reverse. He's the Mr. Robinson in that scenario. But we finally get Cliff and Pussycat to meet, and the rest is history as it is a ride that he probably wishes he had never given. But if he doesn't give this ride, we do not know who the people are coming through the door six months later. How do you feel about this song and this moment in the film? Uh, it's, a, it's a good song. I'm not really a Neil Diamond guy, but uh, it's it perfect for um, the scene. I mean, Cliff in the um, book, doesn't he also buy, he buys the Tom, the Tom Jones greatest hits or whatever, right? Yes, he does. So, so you know, that, that's kind of as hip as he goes. And actually, I bought a Tom Jones record the other day. That's actually quite a good record. You know, that, that's kind of as hip as he goes. And this is when Neil Diamond was kind of becoming Neil Diamond. He, I mean, he, he had been a, mainly a songwriter. He, he wrote, I'm a believer for the monkeys at this point, a couple of other songs for the monkeys. And this kind of was when he, around the time he wrote Sweet Caroline on that album as well. Um, so he was kind of at the beginning of, of his start as a, as a, you know, a, massive star i really just really enjoy the song you know it's again it's not an on the nose selection you expect from neil diamond other songs that could have fallen in but the fact that we pick a song that's not as well known that's about a basically a biblical revival person who goes from town to town especially in la yeah the, the song and the imagery don't necessarily mix but it's it's just kind of great it's just a great sound it just really works i mean it kind of works for manson in a way you know kind of that kind of work. Yeah, yeah, it kind of like a little, uh, almost like a culty-esque vibe to it, but meant to be, it was supposed to be 
kind of summer of love, free love. We don't realize that he's grooming women to be murderers. Also, it's the wrong month <laughs> as well. It was not out by the time that scene is in the film. Only through research do we know this, because otherwise no one else probably realized that. However, is it that playing? Song, I don't think song, that song's playing on the radio. That's one of the few songs that's not on the radio. I feel it plays as for the moment, but it could be on the radio. I'm trying to I, recollect. I think, I think it's on the radio. You might be right. We'll have, to, we'll have to check. We'll have to check, and anyone out there hit me up on socials and let me know, was it on the radio or is it over the soundtrack? It could be a case where the the DJ... No, I'm wrong. Actually, I'm wrong. The the single came out in January 29th, 29th of 69, so I'm wrong. I'm wrong, sorry. So it just recently... So it's a brand new song, though, because we're about February 8th, February 7th? Yeah, yeah. It's a brand new song, but the album came out in April. My hmm. mistake. Gotcha. But, but again, that's, that's some pretty good research on Tarantino and his music supervisor's part to realize that this song came out like just early. So it's like the brand new song that would be being played for him. And, and, the, and the song that's the Hey Little Girl or whatever song it is, that's a really old song. That's from like 59. Interesting that they would be back-to-back. Song almost 10 years old that would still be getting radio play at that moment, but apparently probably did. Well, it's probably he, he had it on like these... The oldie channel, then he switched it to yeah, like the news, newer channel. So, so it's probably a song from when he was younger. You know, he's like, yeah. oh, that's, I remember that song. And he's it's like, oh, I don't like that's when and switched it to yeah. what was. But for me, it's my favorite song. I, I do love it. You know, everyone will know it from if they saw the trailer. And a lot of times, some of his songs that are in the trailer don't make the film. So it's always nice when the song in the trailer makes the film. Uh, I just feel like it adds. It feels just something something about it. We already, we're already ingrained in our mind that we know the song. And then sometimes when it doesn't pop up in the film, you're kind of like, oh, that sucks. But this one did make the film. That leads us to song 17, Don't Chase Me Around by Robert Korff. Corp is an American actor and singer who played the lead in the 1970 Roger Corman film, Gas. The song was written by Barry the Fish Melton, co-founder and lead guitarist for the psychedelic band Country Joe and the Fish, and performed by Robert Corp as part of the soundtrack for the film. Now this song plays as Cliff realizes one of the Manson family male members has punctured his tire with a knife, so Cliff punches him in the fucking face until he agrees to change the tire. And it's another moment for us to understand that Cliff doesn't fuck around. He's not someone to be fucked with. He will go to violence if it's called for. So that just like when we were shown that, hey, he beat up or at least went toe to toe with Bruce Lee and wasn't afraid. We understand why he shows no fear when the Mansons show up six months later. But also it gives us so we don't have to do any flashbacks. We know he's a war hero. We hear about it. Like there's great little nuggets dropped in for us to understand who Cliff is. And if you read the book, you really get to know who Cliff is. This movie could have been a lot violent if this was actually told more from the perspective of Cliff and less from Rick. It's a lot of things that Cliff Cliff has done in his life that this movie would have been a lot more violent had we been telling the story of Cliff Booth as opposed to the story of Rick Dalton. So I love it because I love when he, I just love the filming of it when he punches him and he goes up off his feet in slow motion. I love when he's got him by the hair and he turns over, he goes, ladies, and then fucking punches him again. Oh, I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm a sicko. I'm sorry, but I just love when Brad Pitt's character, when Cliff gets to fucking rock this kid out of his fucking moccasins. So it's a memorable scene for me. How about for you, sir? Did you remember the song? Do you like the song? And how'd you feel about that scene of, Cliff Booth whooping some ass. No, I mean, Cliff Booth whooping some ass is always great. Um, one of it is actually, I think, the only song in the film that was not out during the events of the film. Which is okay, because it's also one of the only songs in the film that's not playing on a radio. 
So it's a needle drop that's not technically the music that the characters are hearing. So we might be able to give them a pass for that because it's one of the few that we get where we're not listening to the actual song as it's being played in the movie. Or do you feel like that's bullshit and we're going to call them out on it? Well, it, it's it's fine. It's from the 1970s. It's, it's, it's actually from the film Gas mm-hmm. or how it became necessary to destroy the world in, in order, order to save it, which is a very weird post-apocalyptic hippie movie that Roger Corman directed and actually is kind of the film that put him off directing for most of the rest of his career, basically. He moved into being mainly a producer. He, he did direct some of Von Richen, Fong, and Brown, which is like the Red Baron movie he did in Ireland, and also directed uh, Frankenstein Unbound, which is the last film Roger Coleman ever directed. And it was also a film written by John, George Armitage, uh, who would go on to do My, Miami Blues and Rose Point Blank, is when he was a screenwriter for Coleman. So it was, you know, it's a bit of a, a nod to uh, one of his all time heroes, Roger Coleman. Although it's not a very good film, I have to say. Song's better than the film. And that, that happens a lot sometimes. Sometimes songs there's, there's are better some, than the film. There's some very cool stuff in the film. It's just not a very good film. Well, it works beautifully in this scene. Once again, there are breadcrumbs being laid for us as the viewer to know that who Cliff is. And that at the end of the day, even though Rick seems to get the credit at the end of the film for everything that's happened, it's really Cliff. It's the stunt guy who, as he says in the beginning, carried his bags for him. And that's exactly what he did in the majority of that end scene. But it leads to song number 18, Mr. Sun, Mr. Moon, our third and final song from Paul Revere and the Raiders. This song is the third song from the band to be featured on the soundtrack. It was originally released as a single in early 1969 and appears on their album, Heart Heavy, with Marshmallow, and peaked at number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The version that appears in the film is from a performance by the band on the daytime variety show, It's Happening. And on the track, it says featuring Mark Lindsay. So apparently maybe they were having a bit of a fallout at this point that they had to put that on the track. But it is on the album marked that way. Well, he, he was not the original lead singer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Paul Lee Raiders were formed in like 58. And he joined in like 60. And by this point, he had became kind of uh, this teen idol type because they got so big. And and and, um, and and very soon after, he went solo. So, so it was probably just like, let's put Mark Lindsay a little more at the front because... Some older guy playing the keyboards is is not really the leader of the band at that point. Well, this song plays during a Paul Revere and the Raiders performance on the variety show It's Happening. That's on the TV that Squeak is watching in the George Spawn house as Mr. Cliff Booth has shown up and is going to check on his friend. And the screen door with the small little lock will not keep him from entering the premises. So Squeaky, realizing that she is not going to be able to stop this gentleman, decides to let him in and make sure that he knows that she just recently fucked his brains out, which is something that he did not need to know. But we pretty much don't pay attention to this because it's on the TV. There's a couple things on the TV. We're pretty much more looking at what Cliff is doing, which is looking around the, the, you know, the place, looking how it's in really disarray, the rat still trapped in the fucking trap, just the whole scenery, not sure if he's going to go back and find his buddy alive. So... We don't notice really everything that's going on on the TV. So, again, it's one of those songs, just like one from earlier, that you could really bypass and not even know. Remember those even on the show. So, at this point uh, in Paul Revere's history, that they had became a, a very big band. And the show, uh, what was the name of the show you said they were on? Uh, it's Happening. It's Happening. So, yeah, It's Happening was a weekday version of American Bandstand, essentially, which was, of course, Dick Clark's sort of 
famous show where you would have the you know the top records of the, of, of the week, uh, very similar to the UK's top pops. But it's happening. Paul Revere and the Raiders were like the house band uh, every day, so that's why the comparison of the Monkeys were you know they were they both kind of had these TV shows. Although the Monkeys show was had a storyline to some extent and kind of was his own thing, uh, and this was more his performances of of Paul Revere and Raiders and whatever other bands they would have on. That show was on, I believe, before Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows, that is the vampire TV show yes. that was remade as a movie by Johnny Depp and did not do very well, if I'm not mistaken. By Tim Burton. The <laughs> last collaboration, actually. You know, I don't want to blame them for it. I just think it was made, uh, he should have made it back in the 80s. I think that would have actually landed back during a time frame that he was in his wheelhouse, late 80s, early 90s. I think that would have been a better time to release it as opposed to the time frame he did. But hey, what do I know? Yeah, it's happening. It was both a kind of continuation of American Bandstand, but it was also um, a sort of follow-up to um, another show that was called Where the Action Is. It was a more sort of um, very much uh, a garage rock show. They would have all the kind of garage bands of the day. Uh, and, and that phrase has kind of became very synonymous with garage rock, Where the Action Is. It's even like all these compilations called Where the Action. And it leads to song 19, a song that has been recorded by numerous artists. But for this soundtrack and for this film, it was California Dreaming, recorded by Jose Feliciano. This song was originally written by John Phillips and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas in 1963. It was first recorded by Barry McGuire in 1966 and has the Mamas and the Papas singing backup vocals on it. The Mamas and the Papas released their own version in 1965 as part of their If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears studio album. The song reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and was named the number one song for 1966. This has also been covered by the band America, the Beach Boys, and Jose Feliciano, who released his version in the summer of 1968, where it reached number 43 on the Hot 100 chart and number 20 on the R&B chart. And this song plays as Cliff picks up Rick from the Lancer set and we see people leave. Now, what Tarantino did, which many don't realize, and I think I talked about it last year. I may not have. Uh, I thought I did, but I, it's been a while. It's been a year. I don't remember completely. But we also see Jim Stacy, played by Timothy Oliphant, leave on a motorcycle in this moment. Now, four years or so later, Stacy was hit uh, while driving his bike by a drunk driver which resulted in the death of his girlfriend who was with him and the amputation of his left leg and arm. He eventually returned to acting uh, in 75 and then retired in 92. But that's just a little intentional nod to the events of Jim Stacy's. We would never see Jim Stacy again. To watch him ride off on a motorcycle is kind of this little foreshadowing of what Jim Stacy's life would unfortunately turn into when a tragic event of him being hit by a drunk driver four years later while riding a motorcycle with his girlfriend, would result in her death and him losing the left side of his appendages. It's a little insight there. And it's also a very kind of somber song, too. I mean, California Dream is a very somber song. And it's really well done by Jose Feliciano. Great cover of it. The Beach Boys have covered it. Like, a ton of people have, have covered the song. Well, well, well it's, a, it's a Mamas and the Papa song originally. Yeah. And, of course, she, uh, Sharon Tate was best friends with Chaz. As we see in the uh, Playboy Mansion scene. Yeah. And also... um. Oh God! Was it's the the, the not not, not uh, it's, um, Michelle Phillips as well. Yep. She was very close with. So and of course, Straight Shooter is a Mamas and Papas song. So it's all very much connected. It's all relevant. How do you feel about the song and uh, Jose Feliciano's cover of it? Uh, I mean, it's a good cover. I prefer the original, but I also get why it was, it's a kind of more interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's a much more somber take on the song than the. Mama's and Papa's Papa's, yeah. And also it's a less obvious vision, but it, it works really well in the scene. And it, you know, definitely 
foreshadows what's about to come. Yes, it does. From the moment we have Cliff Walk on to the Spawn Ranch to this ending, and it's... also it's the part of, it's also probably the version that Cliff and Rick would know more than the Mamas and the Papas version. Yeah, oh, especially yes, yes, absolutely. Especially probably more so Cliff. I don't even think Rick with the Spanish Spanish may he you know hates hippies and probably is not listening to Jose Feliciano as we learn from what he's listening to six months later in his chair out back. So Cliff's kind of that wild at heart but worldly guy where Rick is he's just buttoned down blue collar type of guy originally, even though he's an actor now. He's he's a cowboy. He's he's held down the cowboy persona without me getting too much more political than that. He's a wannabe cowboy. Cliff is the cowboy. Yes, yes, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, Cliff. Cliff's the real deal. But we we learned that when he won't give his sunglasses back, he's come get him, fucker. He goes, goes hands it back to him, calls him Audie Murphy. But it will lead us to song number twenty, Dynamite Jim, the English version from I Cantori, Modern D Alessandroni. This song comes from the 1966 Spaghetti Western from Alfonso Balcazar of the same name. The song was written by Nico Fedenko and Giuseppe Casilla and performed by the Icantori Moderni di Alessandroni Choir, who have also performed on the soundtracks for Festival of Dollars, The Good, The Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West. This song plays during the montage of Italian films that Rick made during his excursion to Italy. It is kind of used as the musical background for our montage by the great Kurt Russell as we talk about what's been happening since the last time we saw these two gentlemen. And they watched his FBI show. And then he went on to make Nebraska Jim and Operation Dynamite and a whole bunch of other films over there, found a wife. So it's the real quick, like, hey, we're going to wrap up kind of what's been happening for six months and we're going to bring us back. And worked with the second best director of Italian Western. Yes, and Sergio Corbucci. Yes, who I did a Corbucci double feature this year on the Under the Influence. We did Django and we did The Great Silence for our. Oh. Great films. Yes. Great Science is one of those movies that absolutely stunned me this year, the films that I had not seen yet, and I absolutely loved that film. It's one of my favorite Westerns, or Spaghetti Westerns of all time. It's an amazing film. But again, this is one of those songs like, eh, it's just there. You're so enamored by what Rick's done in this little voiceover and all the great poster art they decided to do, which is spectacular, that this song's just in the background. You know, it's you get the little chuckle when we get to see Cliff jump the car and pause and we see his name. Like, there's some great little moments. So, again, this is a song that actually is in the background that I skip it. It's, I don't hate it, but it's, it's nothing. I'm like, oh, that's a great song. I could care less. I just move on, and I'm just, you know, it's just part of that scene. I'm, and by this point, it's like a little calm before the storm. It's almost like uh, from this moment on, Kurt Russell's going to be more prevalent because he's going to start telling us some more stuff as we go. And you feel like you're starting to get into a murder mystery or like a rehash of a murder mystery because we're bringing in a voiceover, and we think we're going to be led somewhere, and it changes. So I don't mind it, but how do you feel about Dynamite Jim, the English version? I mean, it's... It's a, it's a cool little ditty for, for that little montage. It's, it's pretty perfect for it. So not really much else to say about it. And it is perfect. Yeah, no, there really isn't. It's, you know, it just it just fits for the moment. There's a lot of songs throughout this journey that just fit the moment that they're in. They're, it's okay sometimes to have background music. Only problem is that sometimes I feel like those background songs are easier to put on a soundtrack than songs that you wish could be put on because they cost more money. So it just is what it is. A lot of times we get some of these extra background songs because they can't afford to put... Some of the bigger name songs on the album is what it is. Licensing sucks. What are you going to do? It takes song 21. It's You Keep Me Hanging On, a Quentin Tarantino edit, as it is written on our linear notes by Vanilla Fudge. This song was written by Holland Dozier Holland 
It was first recorded in 1966 by the American Motown group, The Supremes, reaching number one on the Hot 100 chart. A year later, psychedelic rock group Vanilla Fudge remade the song for their first single, appearing on their 1967 album, Vanilla Fudge. Their version of the song reached number six on the Hot 100 chart, and has also been featured in the TV shows The Sopranos and Mad Men, the movie War Dogs, and the video game Mafia 3. This is the song that Cliff has decided to put on the record player, much to... It's a cover of a Supreme song. But really cool cover of a Supreme song, like a very psychedelic, dark, kind of sounding, moody song. As everyone who's seen the end of this film knows, he puts it on, he's gonna make uh, food for Brandy, he starts to realize that the LSD cigarette has kicked in, and before he knows it, we have got the techs and friends have burst in, and then all hell's gonna break loose as he unleashes a weapon of mass destruction in Brandy, who is melted into the couch and they don't see him. She is ripping off junk and fucking people up, and Cliff is fucking people up, and then eventually... The girl who screams forever, and we're so happy she dies. She goes out the window, and the song kind of stops. We don't hear it anymore. She goes into the pool, and good old Rick gets out the old 14 fistful Glosky flamethrower and takes her out. You know, he did a great job of marrying this song to the scene, and I really like it a lot. It just works so well. I don't know. What are your feelings like? I think it's the most underrated song because I think a lot of times we get lost in what's happening in the scene. And that's it's just really cool background music, but you don't really know the song. It's, for me, it's probably the most underrated. But again, there's a lot of other good songs on there too. How do you feel about You Keep Me Hanging On cover? I have never liked Vanilla Fudge, but I think it's perfectly used. And also, the other thing about Vanilla Fudge is they were produced by Shadow Morton, who was the producer of Shangalons, who are my favorite pop group of all time. The lead of the pack and all of these great girl group songs. And I still don't like Vanilla Fudge. They, they, I mean, they were just, they were kind of a proto prog band because they had a sort of progginess to them, which I don't like. But it is perfectly used in the film. And to be honest, it made me kind of like the song now after the years of hating it. And, and it's also about as hip as Rick would probably go because you, you could see a kind of 35 year old sort of guy at that time being into that sort of that song and that album you know it's it's not it's not the doors and it, but it's not and it's not that hip but it's to him it would be the hippest thing you get what I mean absolutely and obviously he's gonna listen to it because he's he's high he's high as a kite now and it kind of I mean it does fit with the mood of, of the of the acid trip. Also, his wife probably really likes that record. So he's probably has grown to really like that album. His wife's a lot younger than he is and much hipper than he is. It's a perfectly placed piece of music for the scene, and it works spectacular. I mean, all hell breaks loose. It's a great backing track for it. It just really keeps a dark mood. Uh, it, it starts to amp up as the, as the violence starts to kick in. I really like the song. Like, it really works really, really well in that moment. And you always wonder what songs he's going to pick for certain moments in a film. You know, when when like your climaxes come, what what's what's the the beat going to be that's going to uh, join it? And like Steeler's Wheel early on, you know, in his career, it just it really just like encompasses what's happening in that moment. And so does this. So really, really enjoyed that version of the song. Uh, like you said, I don't know much more of Vanilla Fudge. Not a not a big. I'm not a big '60s rock fan outside of like some of the Beatles stuff and some of the Stones and the Doors. Like, not a huge fan of some of the the pop stuff. I was more of a rock fan with the Who and the likes. But you know, hey, works for works perfectly here. And that'll bring us to the final song of music on this album, track number 22, Miss Lily Langtree from Maurice Jarre. I'm sure I'm pronouncing his last name wrong. I do apologize. He's dead. He's not here to tell me. We'll go with that. 
Maurice Jarre was an Academy Award-winning French composer and conductor, best known for his film scores that include Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Mosquito Coast, Fatal Attraction, Grills in the Mist, Ghost, and Dead Poets Society. This song comes from the soundtrack of the 1972 John Huston Western, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. This song plays as Rick walks with Jay Sebring to meet Sharon Tate and continues as the first end credits and technically the actual opening titles of the film at the end when we realize that he's announcing to us that you've just watched the fairy tale called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I really, really enjoy how, you know, I've been saying throughout these, this season that most of his ending songs are leave you upbeat and happy. I don't think this doesn't leave you upbeat and happy. It just has a very fairy tale-like feeling to it. It's, you know, not not necessarily like a, a happy, upbeat song like we get in a lot of his uh, endings, but yet it's still a very positive feeling song as it's the closest he'll ever probably get to like a Disney sounding ending of a film with it sounding like we've just watched some kind of Disney movie, although there was a lot of violence that Disney doesn't usually show. Don't get it wrong. Disney's a very violent movie. It's early stuff. A lot of mom and dads being killed in Disney. A lot of mom and dads had to die for the characters to move forward. But how do you feel about this song, Miss Lily Langtree, as it being used as the ending? Because it's got that great crane shot as we watch him go up the drive. Well, it's um, it's from, uh, it's actually one of the more acronistic pieces of music from the film. This is actually from the soundtrack for Life and Times of George Roy Bean, John Houston film with Paul Newman, which was uh, from 1972, so three years later than the events that were just depicted. But given that, you know, it's this sort of fairy tale ending, you know, using a song from something from nineteen seventy two is fine. But yeah, it 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 definitely, you know, has a sort of fairy tale aspect and sort of a bittersweet, you know, aspect to that, you know, in the film obviously Sharon's been saved, but you know, everyone knows that's not the reality of what happened. So No it is not, unfortunately. Sharon Tate and her unborn child never actually made it out of that home, along with the other people in the house that night. They were all brutally murdered. Jay Sebring and uh, well, was murdered. Um, the, the woman was murdered as well. Um, yeah, the woman, the Folgers, the uh, heir to the Folgers' fortune, and her Polish boyfriend. I forget his name. Oh yeah, the, the, I know. I know. He, he was a composer, I think. What's his name? Does a great job of telling us this, but you. You know, we don't really pay attention to it because these. I mean, this is the first time we're really seeing outside of J.C. Bring. This is the first time we're seeing these people in the film. No, no, no. He was an actor. My actor. Yeah, he was. He, he, he was. He was one of Polanski's friends from Poland. It was just over. Yeah, I, I think he went to the same film school as uh, as Polanski, if I'm not mistaken. Hopefully, he didn't have the same predilection for young girls as Polanski. Maybe that was just a Polanski thing and not a Polish thing. Well, well that was one <laughs> of the things from the. From the Chinatown book, there's a great, well, not great moment, but there's a, it's a moment uh, when, because um, back in the 70s in L.A., it was very easy to get underage boys or girls, whatever you, you wanted. It would be advertised. And, and in, 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 like, the back of the paper, uh, the, someone saw that he had circled this, like, 15-year-old prostitute. Yep, that's why he's not allowed in America anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, good old Roman. Way to take a tragedy and keep it going. Good job, buddy. So <laughs> he'll be putting out a greatest hits of pedophile music pretty soon. Well, Roman Polanski's not a musician. No, I know. I was joking because I said about that time life. He'll he'll be the the spokesperson for the greatest hits of the pedophile rock. 
He'll be he'll be the person on the on the commercial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now there was a total of thirty one tracks, and we did twenty two of the music. There are nine other tracks. There are seven commercials that fall on, which are great because they're old commercials, and some of them you can't believe some of the things they're selling. It's it's amazing how some of the things were sold back in the late sixties. But we've got mug root beer. My favorite being Tanya Hawaii Corporation Tanning Butter. Doesn't burn as much as you think. Also, with that one, it's just a great song. I mean, the jingle yeah. is just great. It's just great. It's like, yeah, you might get burned, but who hasn't been burned before? It's just like, wow. It's just crazy. Uh, we've got Numero Uno, the Clairol Cologne for Men. It comes in four different scents. We've got Heaven Sent by Helena Rubinstein. We've got a Ray Bradbury book called The Illustrated Man. No, 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 no. It's the film. Oh, sorry, the film. I apologize, the film. Which was, of course, on Video Archive podcast. Yes, yes, it was. There's also another Clairol commercial, this one for Summer Blonde. Don't you want to be blonde? Come on. And then at the very end of the actual film, there's a KHJ Batman promotion with the original actors from the TV show as a part of that promotion. I also love the fact that in Tarantino world, Batman... Had a full season. <laughs> yes, yes. Because it's Batman was canceled by that point. Yes. But obviously, but also, there's the whole point was like we can get you on Batman or whatever. And our last two tracks are two Don Steele reads that don't go with songs. This one, this one, I was just like, okay, the Vagabond High School Reunion. Now that's not in the movie. I do not ever remember him reading anything about the Vagabond High School ten year reunion for the class of 1959. That might be. That might be on. Before Hey Little Girl, that would make sense. Maybe. Maybe. It just doesn't stick out in my mind. And then the last one is the KHJLA weather report that Don Steele does. Of the seven commercials, sir, which one is your favorite that you can recall from the ones I read? It's kind of a joint between the Illustrated Man and Batman. Those two are just great. And they're all real, folks. I just want you to understand. They're actually the real commercials from the time. Like I said, there's a person who recorded over 14 hours of KHJ radio play from the late 60s, and they made it into this freaking movie, The Real Deal. The Real Deal, Don Steele. It's the real thing. It's not re-recorded as if you listen to anything that Tarantino does on his podcast with Roger Avery. A lot of times he does the reads in different voices. He's done a Old Chattanooga, uh, which is a beer that appears in this film and, and also in Death Proof. So he does a couple of reads himself. Sometimes his uh, his voices are not the greatest. No, no. And the, talking about the old Chattanooga one, I think that he should have read that in the voice of his Tennessee character from Django and Chain, the guy in the mask. Well, maybe next time we wear the bags. Like he, I think that would have been a lot funnier having him read old Chattanooga than whatever voice he was trying to do. So, hey, that's why he's a writer-director and not an actor. He just, there weren't in the cards for him. He was better at this. I mean, there was a reason why he was, he got bad reviews when he was on Broadway. I wish that was filmed so much. How about this? Joe Namath? is a better quarterback than he was an actor. Just, you know, some people are good at things that they're good at. So there's two. Is that wrong? Nothing wrong with that. Now, as we kind of alluded to, there are 39 other tracks in the film that do not appear on the original soundtrack release. It's a mix of selected music, selected score pieces, and additional radio spots. Were there any ones that were left off that you wished had actually made the soundtrack instead? Well, I mean, obviously, Out of Time by Rolling Stone should be on the soundtrack. It's so integral to the film. The Stones are on Scorsese. Maybe maybe they give him a discount for putting them on his films as opposed to maybe Tarantino just didn't want to pay the royalty fees because it, it does seem like a weird song to leave off. But as I've in this journey, a lot of times we leave off songs because we don't want to pay the extra money. It could also just be the time of the 
they, I mean, it's packed. I mean, how, yeah. how, I mean, actually, I'm looking. They could have fit it on. It's it's it's, it's 74 minutes and 19 seconds of music, so they could have fit it on easily um, on a CD. Yeah, his last two soundtracks are the two longest. Hateful Eight and this are the two longest soundtracks that he has, time-wise. But, you know, if you're a music fan, you probably have a copy of Aftermath by the Rolling Stones, so it's probably not that. Obviously, Green Door should be on the soundtrack. Oh, yes. And this is, I should say, the only soundtrack, well, one of the few soundtracks where he doesn't have, outside of Inglourious Bastards, that in here, he doesn't have actual recorded moments from the film in it, outside of the Don Steele reels, but that wasn't a part of the film. That was part of reality that he put into this film when he found them. So there aren't those moments, but it would have been fun to have Leonardo DiCaprio's Behind the Green Door. Maybe... Leo, the rest of the recording was so bad that Leo was like, don't put it on, please. <laughs> it was great. It was great to see Leo do it. It was great. The man the man loves to act. Also loves young girls. But hey. Legal apparently, young girls. Oh, yeah, true. True. I, I do should say that. They are of age. They are of age. He definitely leans into that Matthew McConaughey saying. he Instead of high school girls, you know what I love about college girls? I get older, they stay the same age. He definitely likes those freshmen to seniors in college, and he really enjoys them. No, he's a little older than that. It's, it's like 21, 22. I mean, by the time they're 25, he's, he doesn't have He's not interested anymore. But. They have an expiration date. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, anyways, I guess he hides that with all his charity work. I don't know. If I'm not mistaken, his his latest girlfriend is is over 25. So it was. Like Whoa. Oh, well, let's see if she makes it to 2024. We'll see. I never know. I believe she's over 25. No, no, no. I mean, we'll see if she makes it to the year of 2024. We'll see if she's still. Oh, 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 she's oh, still. We'll see. We'll see if she keeps going. We'll see. We'll see yeah, what happens yeah. in 2024. Let's ask our guest. Some fucking questions. All right, well, we'll wrap up this behemoth of an episode with your last ending questions. And we start with, what is your favorite track on this soundtrack? A uh, Good Thing by Paul Revere and the Raiders. That would be my favorite. Excellent pick. It's just a great song. Oh, it really is, yeah. And it's, it's also it's in my DJ box for my club night next week. So oh. And that's an original 7-inch, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's a good song. Number two, what is your least favorite track? On this soundtrack, I, it's gonna be controversial. Is probably Mrs. Robinson. Oh, so okay, that, that's fine. Maybe two on the head. I get it. It's too popular. I get it. I also never liked Simon and Garfunkel. So perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. You, but you enjoy the what's it called game? Whatever that was, Circle Game. Good for you to be able to handle that song. Oh, uh, let's re-listen to today. I was like, I got through the first minute. I was like, I, I know the song. I'm getting the fuck out. Click and gone. Next, couldn't do it. Could not do it today. What is the most underrated track on the soundtrack, in your opinion? Probably Jenny Take a Ride, because it's a really big garage rock mm. uh, song. From the Joe Namath spectacular film, CC and the whatever I said it was. I don't actually think it's from the film. I think it's just on the trailer. It's in the trailer. So, yeah, so it's on the trailer for CC and Company, the standout Joe Namath film from 1969. No, it's it's in the film, actually. It is in the There you go. Although the song is older than the film. It's something like 68 or something. All right, so that'll bring us to our final question for our final episode of this series. Where does this soundtrack rank for you? In all of his other soundtracks, it's probably my favorite. It's certainly, one I've listened to the most. Obviously, the Pulp Fiction one is, is a classic, as is Jackie Brown. And those, those would definitely be the three that I go back to.
And that will do it for this season's Hymnal Devotional Series. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Ian Schultz, creator and writer for Psychotronic.com, for joining me on this, our last Hymnal Devotional. I truly hope you all have enjoyed this season's deep dives into the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantinoverse. Now you can find the link to all of Ian's endeavors along with the socials in our show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind to take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other Tarantino fans, like yourselves, find the show. So join me again next season for our character study series, where each month we will be taking an in-depth look at one of the characters from Tarantino's modern-day classic, Pulp Fiction. Join me and Petros Patsilvis of the KGM Coppola Connections podcast and the Getting to Foley podcast the third Friday in January as we put the charismatic hitman Vincent Vega under the microscope first to see what makes him tick. And be sure to join us next week for the kickoff of Season 3 as Mr. Craig Cohen from Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims returns to help me kick off our Pulp Reflection series. So until then, this has been the Reverend Scott K. Have a happy new year and may Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production. <laughs>